You might ask the question, what does Elijah have to do with Christmas? It's a fair question. We're here today, of course, on Christmas Eve, as often known, and people often come to church with the expectation of hearing some sort of message on the Incarnation. And yes, we'll look at that subject in more detail tonight. But that's not to suggest that this portion has nothing to do with the Incarnation. It has much to do with that subject. And that's why, really, I felt in bringing this series of studies on Elijah to close, this was an appropriate message even for our minds today. Because in the confusion of this world, and so much goes on in this world that really draws people away from Christ, it is important that our minds are taken to Christ. We're not immune from this world and the worldliness that dominates the season and would draw us away from affection for Christ. We, as God's people above all, must have our minds set afresh on the Savior. You see, Elijah's translation that we saw last Lord's Day is a landmark event in the Scriptures. Enoch and now Elijah are two men taken unto glory without dying. And given how remarkable an event this was, we can perhaps understand why there was prevailing thought in Jewish minds regarding Elijah and the coming Messiah. Verse 10, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? It was not unreasonable for them to expect Elijah to come physically and personally to this world as one who did not die, that he would come back in some way prior to the coming of the Messiah. And that thought does not only come because of his marvelous translation to glory, but also from prophecy that we'll see very shortly over in Malachi chapter 4. Hence the question of verse number 10 may seem strange to us, but it would not have been in those days. The disciples have just seen the Lord transfigured, and yet this question comes, why then say the scribes that Elias must, come, must first come? What's the question about? Well, we'll see that as we continue in our studies today. But in this last message on Elijah, I want to consider how his ministry and the expectation of his return teach us about the Messiah and his coming. In fact, how Elijah would point our minds to the gospel afresh today. So first of all, please note with me, Elijah and the identity of Jesus. I've said already that Elijah's coming before the Messiah was a valid expectation. It was a valid expectation in the light of the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi. Turn back just a few pages in your Bible to the book that precedes Matthew, and it's Malachi chapter 4. And in Malachi chapter 4, you have, again, this reference to Elijah Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. When I was, again, younger in the faith, I always looked at those latter verses of Malachi chapter 4 and and presumed they were referring to the Lord's second coming. You get the words, great and dreadful. Uh, And you think to yourself, the day of the Lord, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, it must be a reference to the Lord's second coming, His glorious return. 
But just again to put that aside for now, the day of the Lord refers to God coming, if you like, and intervening in human history. And the idea of dreadful here is really the, the awfulness, in the proper sense of awe, the gloriousness of the Lord's coming. It was a great and glorious day of the Lord. And before that day, Elijah was to come. And so the scribes in that time, again, we think of Matthew chapter 17, and the scribes are saying in verse 10, those who knew the Old Testament, those who were experts in the Old Testament, they say to themselves, Elias must first come. They, they understood Malachi as referring to Christ's first coming. But they expected that in light of Malachi, Elijah would come prior to the Messiah. There'd be some prior coming of this man Elijah before the Messiah is revealed. That was their thinking. And so, you see even back in Matthew chapter 16, when the Lord Jesus came and did miracles, one of the conclusions they drew was that here's Elijah. They're saying, again, Matthew 16, verse 13, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias. And so there was discussion and conjecture as to, Is Jesus Elijah? There was an expectation of someone coming as Elijah, doing miracles, doing things that reveal the power of God. They're expecting Elijah to come. That in turn leads to the dilemma of the disciples. If this was an understandable expectation, you'll see secondly in your outline, there is a dilemma here. What is the dilemma? Well, Peter has just affirmed in Matthew 16, thou art the Christ. Thou art the Messiah. That was their conviction. And again, the Lord affirms that. You know, heaven has revealed this unto you, Peter. You're, you're right, I am indeed the Christ. But if you're the Christ, how can you die before Elijah comes? Because chapter 17, verse number 9, tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now, we know the disciples struggled to understand what those words, risen again from the dead, meant. They, they, they struggled with that idea. But they, they, they get the point. The Son of Man will die. And they say to themselves, well, how then do the scribes say Elias must, must first come? How does that make any sense? Did the prophecy, did it come to pass? Or more worryingly, was the prophecy misunderstood? Or worse than all of that, are you not the Christ? Could it be that we're wrong? You've got to help us wear this up in our minds, Lord. We're in a dilemma here. You say you're Messiah, we say you're Messiah, but Elias must come first. And this brief appearance on the mountain doesn't seem to do enough. They have that idea. Look what's being said here. Elias comes upon the mountain, verse number 3. Moses and Elias talking with him. But they understood the prophecy in the Lord's words, verse 11. Elias shall come and restore all things. Not just come, but do something. I wonder in part, just passing aside, is that why Peter says let's build some tabernacles? Elias is here to stay for a while. 
if this is what's involved in Malachi chapter 4. I don't know for certain, but it's certainly a possibility. The concern is this. Jesus, the Christ, he's here, he's about to die, and yet Elijah's not come. How do we get this all to make sense? Well, then we see thirdly, the Lord's explanation. If there is this expectation that leads to dilemma, how does the Lord explain this? Well, he affirms the prophecy. He says, Elias truly shall first come. Yet that bit's correct. No trouble there. He shall indeed come first. Yet, not in the sense and the way the scribes understood. Elijah was not coming back personally, physically to restore all things. To understand Malachi's words in that literalistic sense was wrong. He states Elijah will come, verse 11, he will restore all things. Indeed, he will predict that the Son of Man will suffer and be despised, verse number 12. But Elijah has come already because John the Baptist is the coming Elijah. That's obvious, verse number 13. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the coming Elijah promised and prophesied in Malachi chapter 4. The connection of John the Baptist and Elijah, again, recurs on several times through the Gospels. And it's an interesting study because he affirms that he is not Elijah literally. You know, go back to John chapter 1 or forward to John chapter 1. We read this together and again, I wanted to read it. In some detail today, John chapter 1. It says there, The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then art thou? Elias. And he said, I am not. Again, that's difficult. If you're again, a young person trying to understand the Scriptures, How does Matthew 17, Jesus saying, he's Elijah, and now John himself saying, no, I'm not. There is no contradiction here. John is affirming that he is not, if you like, an appearance of Elijah as one who was translated, and now Elijah literally has come just with a name change. I'm Elijah, but now I'm going to go by the name John. That's not what's happening here. He's saying, I'm not Elijah in that sense. Absolutely not. And yet you go back to Matthew chapter 11, and you will see that John the Baptist is called Elijah. Matthew chapter 11, and the verse 14. Again, this is the Lord speaking by John, back in verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say on the multitudes concerning John, I'm going to explain John to you. He's in the wilderness, a reed, shaken with the wind, and they, you get all the things that they, they saw. And then verse 14, And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Explicitly stating that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the promise of the coming Elijah. And you go back to verse number 10, and you'll see that connection with Malachi. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. This is the one promised in Malachi to come before the Lord. John the Baptist is Elijah. 
one other reference, and that's Luke chapter 1. And this really ties all things together. These are the words of the angel to Zacharias. And Zacharias has been told about the birth of a son. They shall call his name John. And the language is, is wonderful regarding the predictions about John. Verse 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You want any clearer proof than that? That John the Baptist fulfills Malachi chapter 4, the angel from heaven, the divine messenger, making this point. John the Baptist fulfills the promise of Elijah. And that's what the Lord says back in Matthew chapter 17. He's making the point, Elias has come already. And he explains who Elias is. They knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed or wanted. And they understood he spake of John the Baptist. Now, this just as an aside. is such an encouraging event in history. The disciples, they had come to know the Lord. The Lord himself said to Peter, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. These are saved men, saved Judas. But the three who are there on the mount, Peter, James, and John, they're in communion with Christ. They know the Lord. To put it simply, they're born again of the Spirit of God. And yet... They haven't the Scriptures all sorted out. There are things they do not understand. And that should be a comfort to us. They still have questions and struggles, yet they're not unconverted. Again, sometimes there uh, are times in our Christian life and we, we, we're exposed to some, some doctrine that we haven't thought about before. It's, it's, it's new to us. And we think to ourselves, we can get discouraged and overwhelmed and, and downcast. And I'm never going to understand the Scriptures. No, no. All your life, there'll be new things to see in the Word of God. N- not new doctrines, but to you, new things, as your understanding grows and develops. And the problem they had was, They misunderstood the word. They knew the word, but they did not understand it properly. They were incorrect in their interpretation of the word of God. Just a reminder to us, be careful. Be careful in how you interpret the word. Again, you know the the idea, and it, it sounds so important. We're going to interpret the Bible literally. I get the spirit there. We want that mindset. We want, to, we want the Bible to say what the Bible says and to mean what it says. We're not looking for hidden messages and a Da Vinci Code sort of ideas, some, some hidden clues in the Bible. No, no, no. The Bible's clear. But the Bible is interpreted literally. When we understand the form of the text and what it means, including at times the picture language and the metaphors of prophecy that are revealed in this sort of way. It was not unreasonable to expect Elijah to literally come back in person before Messiah came. But that's not what Malachi 4 meant. There was not a prediction of Elijah's physical return to earth prior to Messiah. It was in the spirit and power of Elijah that John the Baptist came as a messenger preparing the way of the Lord. 
So be, be careful. Study the Bible diligently, but a literal interpretation means you study the Bible in its context, in the language used, in its type of genre, history is history, prophecy is prophecy, letters is letters. You're careful in your understanding of the Word of God. Because as God's people, we need to grow in these things. But what I want you to see in this particular heading is that the Bible is so careful to prove that Jesus is the Christ. This is yet another example whereby the Scriptures prove to us without doubt that Jesus is indeed who He says He is. He is the predicted Christ of God. He is the one predicted in Malachi. And again, it's not insignificant that Malachi ends as the end of the Old Testament with the expectation of the coming of John the Baptist as the next event in redemptive history, preparing the way for Christ Jesus. And so you go from Malachi to Matthew and you go, wow, the Christ has come, predicted and now born in Bethlehem that we might be redeemed. He's come and John the Baptist proves that. And the Lord's language proves that. He did restore people. He did bring about the challenge of the law to bring people to repentance. He pointed people to Christ Jesus as the Lamb of God. And even his own suffering was a type of Christ's suffering. Verse 12 of Matthew 17. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. The incarnation story fulfills prophecy so clearly that an honest, careful student will be convinced that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. I've said this, I've probably lost count of my time, I've said this to, to people, to young people in our congregation, and those who are wrestling, will they believe this or will they not believe this? Your refusal to believe in Jesus Christ is not down to a lack of evidence. It is down to the fact you don't want to. You understand the cost. You understand how it changes your life. If I say I'm a follower of Christ Jesus, everything changes. And it does. Understand that. But it's not because the Bible's not clear. You look back to Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, and the number of times in the incarnation story, it says that this would be fulfilled. That we'd be left in no doubt. Only one figure in human history fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding Messiah. Only one figure. His name is Jesus. Born in Bethlehem, living in Nazareth, dying in Calvary, rising triumphant from the grave. Elijah, and this prediction proves the identity of Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, please note with me, Elijah and the sufferings of Jesus. Again, back in Matthew 17, we simply note this. Verse number 3. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. They're talking. There's a conversation taking place among the three. The Lord with Moses and Elias. Turn across to Luke chapter 9. Because in Luke chapter 9, we see the subject of their conversation. We don't have it here in Matthew's gospel nor Mark's. We only have it revealed for us in Luke chapter 9. And again, it's the account of the transfiguration. Luke's account and it says there in verse 30, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, 
which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. They're talking about the Lord's death. The word decease there is the word for exodus, and Peter used it of his own death in Second Peter. Again, they're referring, this language of decease, they're referring to the death of Jesus Christ. That's the subject of their conversation. The Old Testament saints in glory expected the death of the Messiah. As we saw last Lord's Day, Elijah is in glory because of coming propitiation. He's in glory, Romans chapter 3, because God is just and the justifier, having made Christ a propitiation for our sins, even for those sins that committed aforetime. Those Old Testament sins are covered in the purpose and in the absolute guarantee of Christ's coming as a propitiation. And so Elijah is in glory on the ground of redemption, if you like, on the ground of the blood that will be shed, and thus in glory he's in expectation that the Messiah will come and die. And when they come and they speak with Jesus Christ, they speak of his death. That these two men would talk with the Lord in that way is mind-blowing. I think it's one of the most wonderful concepts that when the Lord, when the Lord was sent from glory, if you like, when the angels go forward and announce to Mary, you're going to have a son. How can that be? I know not a man. Oh, the power of the Holy Ghost will come upon you. And when that was announced by the angels, Elijah and Moses are there in heaven when the angels go out. They are there in the fullness of time. They're in glory when, if you like, the hourglass of redemptive history comes to the point, it's now time. The Son of God is going to take on our humanity. And they were there. And in glory, they are living there in the understanding that the babe that was born was born to die. Genesis 3 gives us such a hint. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. And yet as the serpent's head is crushed, the serpent bruises the seed's heel. And we we get the sense there of suffering and, and agony, victory through suffering. And yet when you focus on Moses and Elijah in their own ministries, you see how expectant they must have been. You think of Moses. He's the guy that explained the Passover. The angel of death is going to come. And if there's no blood upon the doorpost, your firstborn will die. Redemption through bloods, through sacrifice. A sacrifice that was sufficient for the household. A perfect sacrifice without spot and blemish. You think of Moses. He was the one that God gave the details for the Ark of the Covenant. Gold. Shitting wood overlaid with gold into which is placed the Ark or then the, the tables of stone and upon which goes the, the mercy seat upon which goes blood. Moses, he understood atonement through the shedding of blood the, the, the broken law covered in redemptive blood. He understood these things and he understands in glory When Messiah comes, he's coming to die. Elijah, Elijah, you're going to build an altar. Six 
or sorry, 12 stones, and you're going to reform that altar, and upon those 12 stones, you're, you're going to put an animal, and it's going to be sacrificed, bloodshed, and the fire's going to come down from heaven upon the animal, and not the people. These men understood these doctrines. They were instrumental in the announcement of these doctrines. And when they come to see the Lord on that Mount of Transfiguration, they talk of Christ's death. What a wonderful scene that must have been. Because they understood these things. Not only did they expect the death of Christ, but they understood it. Look what they say again, Matthew, or sorry, Luke chapter 9 and the verse number 31. They use one word. Speck of his decease. The language is so precise. Which he should accomplish. Did you ever hear someone describing their death as something they accomplished? Something happens to us, not by us. But they understood when the Lord came into this world, he was coming with a divine mission. The Father sent the Son, and he had to obey even unto death, the death of the cross. And in obeying that death, he was going to fulfill, complete, and accomplish the purpose of God in redemption. Their understanding was significant. They spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. The simplicity of the nativity story must be seen in light of the brutality of the cross. The babe came to die. We're living in a day when this Christmas season has been so commercialized, so removed from any real spiritual significance, that people are quite happy to have the if you like, almost a mythical concept of a babe born to poor people in a manger and even use that to get some social justice agenda into this world. That story, that sits with them. But you tell them that babe was assigned to die from before time itself. They're not willing to go there. They'll take the cuteness of a baby and the sentimentality of the scene in their minds, but they will not properly understand what's involved in that scene. We must do better. As God's people, we must do better in being clear regarding the coming of Christ Jesus. We must be those, and I say this without any equivocation, we must be those who delight in the doctrine of the Incarnation and who can rejoice and praise God for His so great salvation and sending His Son into this world. We rejoice and delight in that. But we must not stay in Bethlehem. We must get to Calvary and the tomb and the resurrection. We've got to see this as, as one act of redemptive history, not cut into sections, but God coming to save mankind and make clear to people the wrath of God abides upon their head but God sent forth His Son to be propitiation. Don't allow people to stay in the cuteness of the scene without taking them to the brutality of Calvary where the God of heaven pours His wrath upon His Son and people turn their eyes away from the horror of that scene. Christ Jesus came into the world to see of sinners. Well, that's something we're in the sufferings of Jesus. Thirdly, and just briefly, I want to note with you, we're thinking about Elijah here and, the, and really how, the, how Elijah explains the, the, the gospel for us. And think about Elijah here now and the community of Jesus. 
What's this gospel about? Well, the first heading gives us the idea that Jesus Christ came as the Messiah. He came to die. But in his coming, his identity as the Christ, in his dying as the sin-bearing sacrifice, what's accomplished in that? Well, there is a redeemed community. And we find ourselves in Christmas time. We think a lot about family. We rejoice in family at this time. And yet, there are many whose hearts are heavy. There are people missing in their family. We have this idea, this is a family time. And so we feel the grief of those who have passed on. And we would like delight in those who are with us. That's part of our experience. It's a family time. Yet, for some families, they live in the reality that Christ brings a sword. Again, back in Matthew chapter 10, we're, we're told he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And the definition of that sword is given to us. Matthew chapter 10, the verse number 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to send a man that variance against his father and the daughter against her mother. And so, we live in the experience at times that at Christmas, as we consider the gospel, we realize we do so sometimes in divided families. There's a sword between members in our family. There's not that community. There's division because there are those who love Christ and there are those who hate Christ. And by the way, there is no neutral. If you don't love Christ, you hate Christ. And so division occurs in families. And there are those of you, and I, and I can look upon your faces, and I, I know it's true, you feel that deeply in your own families. So let's not forget the Christmas story and the coming of Christ brings together a new family, a true family, the family of God, where we are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, and he is our elder brother, and in that sense, we know this community. He said, preach, that's all well and good, but where's that in the text? Well, it's in the text because of what's happening in this mount. Note what's happening here. Verse 3 of Matthew 17. And behold, there appear unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. The law and the prophets. That's how the Old Testament scriptures were known as in here it's recognized that Moses represents the law and allied to the prophets. And so the two of them together, in many ways, they come and they represent the Old Testament. The apostles are there also, Peter, James, and John. They're on the mountain, and then they represent the new, the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2. And so in many ways, you've got a, a representative group upon that mount of the community of the redeemed. They're there together. Moses who died, Elijah who didn't, again representing what will happen in the final day. There will be those, the dead will rise, and there are those who will live when Christ returns. And the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, then, we'll, then we will be together with the Lord. The entire family of God, together with the Lord, forever and forever. Amen. We're seeing that pictured here for us. The community and the communion of the saints. You know, we, we, we have to emphasize individuality in the preaching of the gospel. We're born as individuals. 
We understand the final day that each one of us individually will give an account of himself to God. Even the language of the rebirth, ye, second person singular, ye must be born again. We're not born as a community, we're born individually. We, we emphasize those things. You've got to turn personally from your sin to God. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. You've got to do it yourself. But in emphasizing individuality, we must not lose the fact of community. That when individuals are saved by God's grace, they're brought into a family. A family of peace. And not the sword. It is incongruous for a professing Christian to have no desire to spend time with other Christians. We're saved in community. Ah, Listen, I can sing in my car. You wouldn't want to hear it, but I can sing in my car. I enjoy doing that. And in a sense, I'm praising the Lord. But it's better here. It's much better here. But I look upon this gathering, and we come from different places, different backgrounds, and yet we come together, we sing the same praise to the same Lord with the same amen, and we do so to the glory of God. This is family. And when troubles come into the church, we, we feel that. We feel the pain and the toil of that. And we, we mourn and we grieve. We weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And if you do not feel part of the family of God in this place for some reason, ask why. I'm, I'm being very, very serious right now. If for some reason you perceive this is not your spiritual family, something's gone wrong somewhere along the way. It might be you, it might be me, it might be somebody else, but something's not right. We will be the family of God in glory. And the transfiguration is a foretaste of glory. They're going to see the kingdom. That's what it says in the Gospels. A foretaste of glory is the community coming together to fellowship and worship God. The community, society, marked by centrality. Final comment is that Christ is central in this community. Elijah and Moses Their attention is fixed upon Christ. The disciples, their attention is focused upon Christ. And when others leave, verse number 8, they saw no man save Jesus only. Again, I want to just take a spiritual application here. For the church of Christ Jesus, Christ must be central. You may have all manner of reasons to go to this church or that church, another church, but you must make sure that in your church, Christ is central. He must be the central focus of church worship. He must be preeminent in the house of God. And as that is true for the society, so it is true for every individual. We live with Christ first. This season that we often say is a time to remember Christ is a time when Christ is most often forgotten. And I mean by Christians. We can get distracted by all that goes on in this season. And our minds are taken away from the Savior. You, you can nod your head right now and say, I hope, I hope you are, and saying, yeah, that's a problem, preacher. 
Well, make sure it's not a problem tomorrow. Make sure that Christ is in your mind and your heart tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day as God spares you all of your days because Christ must always be central in your mind. That He is the central focus of your affection. That He is your first love, your greatest love. And you will give your life for Him. End of the day, that's what Elijah did on earth. On earth, the Lord was central to him. His word was supreme. Elijah does what the Lord asked him to do. He's dependent upon the Lord for grace and supply. We see that in all of his days. He's a man of prayer, communing with the Lord. He's a man with a Christ-centered focus, looking forward. But he warns us we must have a Christ-centered focus. Looking back to Calvary, looking back to the cross, and even now looking to glory, where he lives to make an intercession for us. Is Christ central in your life? Do you long to speak of him? Do you long for him to speak to you? Do you delight to worship him, to praise his name? Is your word, is his word, sorry, a chief delight in your life? The, the questions, we can repeat the questions. You, you know the point. Is Christ first? Is he first? Oh, may God help us to answer that question today. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. We'll close again the word of prayer. Let's seek the Lord also for his blessing upon the open air that follows now. May the Spirit of God come. May we be able, by God's grace, to point folks in our neighborhood to Christ Jesus. They would see the one who is the sole Savior of sinners. Let's pray together, please. Eternal God, we come to thee in Christ's name. We thank you again for the glories of the gospel. That there is a Savior from all sin. His name is Jesus. And we pray, O God, that souls in this fellowship, this gathering today, they would also know the blessing of bringing Christ into their lives. We pray, O God, that you would change and convert souls. Help your people, O God. Maybe maybe delight in the fellowship of the saints in this church. Different ideas and opinions and backgrounds. But maybe unite our hearts around the Savior and delight to praise and worship Him. Oh, Lord God, encourage us today. We thank you for this time together. Bless now on the open air. Give help there. We pray for hearts to be open to receive the truth. We pray for souls to be, to be receptive to the gospel message. Christ would have the glory. Oh, Lord God, we look to thee. Bless our time together now in Jesus' name. Amen.